Chapter 49 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 49 Prometheus Vinctus. I will not die like this. It is unseemly to die like this. The Reverend Thomas Hardnow was exclaiming at this very time, but a few miles off, I hope I am not a coward altogether, but the ignominy is unbearable. In this den of Eumaeus, this sty of Sycorax, entangled in the meshes of a foul hog-net, and with hogs grunt, grunt for the chorus of my woes, my Prometheus class is just waiting for me at the present moment, so far as I can reckon here the climbing of the day, and I had rendered into English verses that delicious bit of chorus. With thy woes of mighty groaning, mortals feel a fellow moaning, and of colchic land indwellers, maids who never quail in a fight, and so on. Oh, how small-minded of me to forget it now! Down to, and springs of holy-watered rivers wail thy pitiable woe. But instead of nymphs of ocean, here comes that old pig again, if he could only grout up that board, which he must do sooner or later, what part of me will he begin upon? Probably this little finger. It is so white and helpless. If I could only, uh, only move to be eaten alive by pigs. Well, well, there is not so very much left for them. Infinitely better men have had a lower end than that. Only I would bend my knees, if bend them I could to the giver of all good, that I may be insensible before the pigs begin. His plight was a very unfortunate one, but still in the blackest veil of woe there is sure to be some little threadbare place from so many people having worn that veil, and even poor Hardenau had one good lookout, to wit, although he had been without food for six and twenty hours now, having been caught in the treacherous toils soon after he set his toes towards his dinner, he was not by any means in the same state in which a low church clergyman must have been. His system was so attained to fasting and all his parts so disciplined that cupboard was only whispered among them in a submissive manner, and even his stomach concluded sorrowfully that it must be Friday. Beyond this considerable advantage, which could not last much longer, there was really little to console him. His cowardly captors, not content with the rabbit net twined round him, had swathed him also in the stronger meshes of a corded gig-net, and even after that, Black George, having had the handling of his legs, and discovered the vigor of their boniness, was so impressed that he called out, I never did heckle such a wiry chap. Fetch a pair of they touch-thongs, Dickus. Same as thou makest use for the ringing of the pigs, my lad. Whoosh! Can he whoosh with my name so pat? Leviticus whispered sulkily, but he brought the unyielding thongs, wherewith the fellow and tutor of Brazenos very soon had his wrists and ankles strapped, and in spite of all struggles through the livelong night, as firmly as a trussed hare was he fixed. Nevertheless, he could roll a little, though not very fast, because his elbows stopped him for being of the sharpest they stuck into the ground, which was of a loamy nature. He fought with this difficulty as with every other, for a braver heart never dwelled in anybody, whether fat or lean, and he plucked up his angles from their bed of earth, 
Whenever the limits of cord would yield, he knew all about the manufacture of twine, so far as one not in the trade could know it, because he had got up the subject for the sake of a whipcord of a puzzle in Theocritus, but this only served to make his case the worse. For at that time honest string was made, the dressing and the facing and the thousand other rogueries make it quite impossible to tie a good knot now, and even if a strap has any leather in it, its first operation is a compromise. But at that stouter period bind made bound, Mr. Hardnow could roll a little, but that was as much as he could do, and rolling did him very little good, except by way of exercise, because he was pulled up short so suddenly by feather-edged boarding, with a coat of tar, the place in which he was penned was most unworthy of such an occupant. It was not even the principal meal-house, or the best treasury of wash. It was not the kitchen of the tasteful pigs, or even their back kitchen, but something combining the qualities of their scullery and dustbin, but the floor was clean, and a man lying lowly, so far as smell was concerned, had certainly the best of the situation, inasmuch as all odors must ascend to the pure ether of the exalted. Hardnow knew that it was vain to roll, because the door was padlocked, and the lower end, which he chiefly tended, had a loose board, lifted every now and then by the unringed snout of a very good old sow. Pure curiosity was her motive, and no evil appetite, as her eyes might tell. She had never seen a fellow and a tutor of a college rolling, as she herself loved to do, and yet in a comparatively clumsy way. She grunted deep disapproval of his movements, and was vexed that her instructions were entirely thrown away. Ah, oh, Linus, Linus, be the cry, and let the good be conqueror, Mr. Hardnow quoted as his legs began to ache. Henceforth, if I have any henceforth, how palpably shall I realize the difference between the alindethra and the circular conistra? In this limited place I combine the two, but without the advantages of either. I take it that, whether of horse or hen or human being, the essential condition of revolutionary employment is that the limbs be free. In my case, they are not free. The exhilaration which would ensue, and of which, if I remember rightly, Pliny speaks, or is it alien? My memory seems to be rolling, too, but the authority what it will. In my case, that exhilaration is, at least for the moment, not forthcoming, but I ought to condemn myself far rather than writers who treat of a subject with the gravity of authority, that is to say, if they ever tried it. Experimentum in corpore vili is what all writers have preferred, if their own bodies were not too noble, what powerful impress they might have left. After such a cynical delivery as this, it served him practically right to hit, in the course of revolution, upon a bit of bone even harder than his own, a staunch piece of noble old ossification, whether herbivorous, carnivorous, or omnivorous dragon, such as would have brought Professor Buckland from Christ Church headlong or even Professor Owen from the British Museum, the Melampus of all good dragons. Hardnow knew nothing about it except that it ran into him and jerked him in such a way over the ground that he got into the highest corner and gladly would have rubbed himself if good hemp had yielded room for it. But this sad blow, which seemed at first the buffet of the third and crowning billow of his woe, proved to be a blessing in disguise. 
Inasmuch as the reaction impelled him to a spot where he descried some encouragement to work, and a little encouragement was enough for him, by virtue of inborn calmness, long classical training and memories, and pure Anglo-Catholic discipline, the young man was still as fresh as paint, in a trouble which would have exhausted the vigor of a far more powerful and fiery man. Russell Overshoot, for instance, even in his best health, would have worn his wits out long ago by futile wrath and raving hunger. Mr. Hardnow could not even guess how there came to be quite a thick cluster of pretty little holes, of about the size of a swan's quill, drilled completely through the board against which his mishap had driven him. The board was a stoutish slab of larch, cut feather-edged, and the saw having struck upon most of these holes obliquely, their form was elliptic instead of round, and their axes not being at right angles to the board, they attracted no attention by admitting light, since the light, of course, entered obliquely, in some parts as close as the holes of a colander, in other places scattered more widely. They jotted the plank for nearly a yard of its length, and afforded a fine specimen of the penetrative powers of a colony of Cyrix gigas, so often mistaken for the hornet. But though as to their efficient cause he could form no opinion, Hardnow hoped that their final cause might be to save his life, which he quietly believed to be in great peril, for he knew that he lay in the remote obscurity of a sad and savage wood, unvisited by justice, trade, or benefit of clergy. Here, if no good spirit came, or unseen genius, to release him, die he must at his own leisure, which would be a long one, and he could discover no moral to be read from his prehistoric skeleton, unless it were that very low one, stick to thy own business. A man of ordinary mind would not have troubled his head about this. Post made diluvium is the strengthening sentiment of this age. No fulcrum whatever for any good work, and the death of all immortality. Hardnow would have none of that. He had no idea of leaving ashes fit to nourish nothing, collecting his energies for a noble protest against having lived altogether in vain. He brought his fettered heels like a double-headed hammer, as hard as his probabilistic swing could whirl, against the very thickest crowded cells of bygone domicile. The wooden shed rang, and the upright shook, and the nose of the sow at the lower end was jarred and her feelings hurt, for, truly speaking, her motives had been misunderstood, and if Hardnow had but kept pigs of his own, he would have gone to work down there, to help her, and so perhaps have got her to release him from his toils. Everybody, however, must be allowed to go at work in his own way, and to find fault with him when he tries to do his best, is, as all critics own, alike ungraceful and ungracious. Mr. Hardnow worked right hard, as he always did at everything, and his heels had their sparables as good as new, and capable of calcitration, though he wore nothing stronger than Oxford shoes with a bow of silk ribbon on the instep. The ribbon held fast, and he kicked, or rather swung his feet by a process of revolution, as bravely as if he had Hessian boots on. At the very first stroke, he had fetched out a splinter as big as the scoop of a marrow spoon, and delivering his coupled heels precisely where the tunnels afforded target, in a quarter of an hour he had worked a good hole, and was able to refresh himself with the largeness of the outer world. Not that he could, however, skilled in rolling, roll himself out of his black jail yet, for the piece punched out was only four inches wide, but that he got a very decent width, in proportion at least to the man's average view, for a clear consideration of the world outside, 
and what he saw now was a pretty little sight, or a peep at country scenery, for the wood just here was not so thick that a man could not see it by reason of the trees, as the Irishman forcibly observed, but a dotted slope of bush and timber widening and opening sunny reaches out of the narrow forest track. There was no house to be seen, nor cottage, nor even barn or stable, nor any moving creature except a pig or two grouting in the tufted grass, and gray-headed daws at leisure, perking and prying for the good of their home circle. But presently the prisoner espied a wicket gate, nearly at the bottom of the sylvan slope, with a little space roughly stoned before it, almost a sure sign in a neighborhood like that of a human dwelling place inside, and when Hardnow's eyes recovering tone assured him of the existence of some moss-grown steps for the climbing of a horse upon either side, he felt a sudden, though it may not have been strictly logical, happiness from the warm idea that there must be some of the human race not far from him. He placed his lips close to the hole which he had made, and shouted his very loudest, and then stopped a little while to watch what might come of it, and then sent forth another shout, but nothing came of it, except that the pigs pricked up their ears and looked around and grunted, and the jackdaws gave a little jerk or two, and flapped their wings but did not fly, and a soft woody echo of a fibrous texture answered as weakly as a boy who does not know. It was pretty much what Hardnow expected. He saw that the wicket gate was a long way off, three or four hundred yards, perhaps, but he did not know that his jailer, Tickus Cripps, was the man who lived inside of it. Otherwise, his sagacious mind would have yielded quiet mercy to his lungs, for Leviticus was such a cruel and cowardly blunderer that, in mere terror, he probably would have dashed grand brains out. But luckily, he was far away now, and so were all other spies and villains, and only a little child, a boy or girl at the distance, nobody could say which, toddled out to the wicket gate and laid fat arms against it and labored with impatient grunts to push it open. Having seen no one for a long time now, Hardnow took an extraordinary interest in the efforts of this child. The success or failure of this little atom could not in any way matter to him, yet he threw his whole power of sight into the strain of the distant conflict. He made up his mind that if the child got out, he should be able to do the like. Then, having most accurate introspection, so far as humanity has such gift, he feared that his mind must be a little on the wane, ere ever such weakness entered it. To any other mind, the wonder would have been that this should continue to be so tough, but he hated shortcomings, and began to feel them, laying this nice question by until there should be no child left to look at. He gazed with his whole might at this little peg of a body, in the distance, toppling forward and throwing out behind the weight of its great efforts, he wondered at his own interests, as we all ought to wonder if we took the trouble. This little peg, now in battle with the gate, was a solid peg in earnest, a fine little crips, about five years old, as firm as if just turned out of a churn. She was backward in speech, as all the cripses are, and she rather stared forth her ideas than spoke them, but still, let her once get a settlement concerning a thing that must be done to carry out her own ideas, and in her face might be seen once for all that stop she never would till her own self had done it. Hardnow could not see any face, but he felt quite a surety of sturdiness from the solid mold of attitude. That heavy gate, standing stiffly on its heels, groaned obstreperously, 
and gibbed at the unripe passion of this little maid. It banged her chubby knees and bruised her warded hand, and it even bestowed a low cowardly buffet upon her expressive and determined cheek. And while she lamented this wrong, and allowed want of judgment to kick out at it, unjust it may have been, but true it is, that she received a still worse visitation. The forefoot of the gate, which was quite shaky and rattlesome in its joints, came down like a skittle-pin upon her little toes, which were only protected on a Sunday. "'Ototoy! Ototoy!' cried Mr. Hardnow with a thrilling gush of woe, as if his own toes were undergoing it. Better yet truly just, lamentation awoke all the echoes of the woods and hills, and Hardnow thought that it was all up now, that this small atom of the wooded world would accept her sad fate and run to tell her mother. But no, this child was a carrier's niece, and a man's niece, under some law of the Lord, untraced by acephalous progeny, takes after him oftentimes and a great deal closer than his own beloved daughter does. Whether or no, here was the little animal, as obstinate as the very carrier, taught by adversity she did thus, Against the gatepost she settled her most substantial availability, and exerted it, and spared it not. Therewith she raised one solid leg and spread the naked foot thereof, while her lips were as firm as any toe of all the lot, against the vile thing that had knocked her about, and the power that was contradicting her. Nothing could withstand this fixed resolution of one of the far more resolute moiety of humanity. With a creak of surrender, the gate gave back, and out came little Peggy Cripps, with a broad face glowing with triumph, which suddenly fell into a length of terror as the vindictive Kate closed behind her. To get out had been a great labor, but to get back was an impossibility, and Hardnow, even so far away, could interpret the gesture of despair and horror. Poor little thing! How I wish that I could help her! He said to himself, and very soon began to think that mutual aid might with proper skill be compassed. With this good idea he renewed his shouts, but offered them in a more insinuating form, and being now assured that the child was female, his capacious mind framed a brief appeal to the very first instinct of all female life, possibly therefore the fairer half of pig and dog creation, appropriated with pleasure his address. At any rate, although the child began to look around, she had no idea whence came the words, "'Pretty little dear!' little beauty, etc., with which the learned prisoner was endeavoring to allure her. But at last, by a very great effort and with pain, Hardnow managed to extract from the nets his white cravat, or rather his cravat, which had been white, when it first hung down his back from the talon clasp of the hollies. By much contrivance and ingenious rollings, he brought out a pretty good wisp of white, and hoisted it bravely betwixt gyved feet, and at the little breach displayed it, and the soft breath of May which was wandering about came and uncrinkled and in little tatters waved the universal symbol of succession apostolical, as well as dinner parties. Little Peggy happened at this moment to be staring with a loose, uncertain glimpse of thought that somebody somewhere was calling her. By the flutter of the white cravat, her wandering eyes were caught at last and fixed for a minute of deliberate growth of wonder not a step towards that dreadful white ghost would she budge, but a steadfast idea was implanted in her mind, and was likely to come up very slowly. It is a waste of time, 
I have lost half an hour. A poor little thing. I have only scared her. Now let me think what I ought to do next. But even while he addressed himself to that very difficult problem, Hardnow began to feel that he could not grapple with it. His mind was as clear as ever, but his bodily strength was failing. He had often fasted for a longer time, but never with his body invested thus, and all his members straightened. The little girl sank from his weary eyes, though he longed to know what would become of her, and he scarcely had any perception at all of pigs that were going on after their manner, and rabbits quite ready for their early dinner, the moment the sun began to slope, and a fine cock partridge who, in his way, was proud, because his wife had now laid a baker's dozen of eggs, and but for his dissuasion would begin to sit to-morrow, and after that a round nose hair, with a philoprogenitive forehead, but no clear idea yet of leverets, and after that, as the shadows grew long, a cart, drawn by a horse, as carts seem always to demand that they shall be, the horse of a strong and incisive stamp, to use the two pet words of the day, the cart not so very far behind him there, as they gave word to stop at the gate to one another, and in the cart, and above the cart, and driving both it and the horse thereof, as Abraham drove on the plain of Mamre, Zachary Cripps, and sitting at his side, the far-traveled and accomplished Esther. End of chapter 49